0: And welcome to Let's Chat Law The Podcast. It's Hannah Mae and Gabby here. Do you want to have a chat about law? If
1: the answer is yes, we've got the episode for you. Discussing everything around negotiation, tactics, techniques, and top tips that you can use in negotiation competitions or
0: even assessment centers. Whether you're on a walk, on your lunch break, or on your commute, join us for this episode of Let's Chat Law The Podcast. and welcome to Let's Chat Law the podcast. Today we're talking about negotiation in this episode. I'm one of your hosts for today. My name is Hannah May and I'm the founder of Let's Chat Law. And I'm Gabrielle Coates.
1: I'm a fourth year m Law student doing the bar course at Northumbria University
0: and an aspiring barrister. In this podcast episode we're chatting about negotiation, an essential skill for lawyers. Business partners negotiate with shareholders on agreements like non-disclosure agreements and so on. It's also important to note the relevance of negotiation skills for aspiring lawyers through assessment centre scenarios and tasks. In this episode, we have been addressing the the question, how can we improve negotiation skills? We spoke to Philip Brown, the founder of The Negotiation Club, who shared tips to improve negotiation skills. And we also spoke to Lillian Adebayo, an associate in mergers and acquisitions and corporate finance.
1: Firstly, I want to say a massive congratulations to one of our members of our podcast team, which is Lana and her partner Raman, for competing in the final round of a negotiation competition recently. During this episode, we will chat with them. They will share their amazing experiences getting involved in this competition. We will also have the opportunity to speak to our podcast editor, Queenie, to help break down a listener question on negotiation. And for our monthly commercial awareness update, Sonali, one of our ambassadors, will talk us through her story. Finally, we will hear from Betty, who will provide us with our monthly legal fun fact. So, Hannah what are the highlights in February for Let's Chat
0: Law? That's a good question. In February, we've had two amazing events so far. At the start, we had our negotiation workshop, which actually sold out. So that was really amazing. And our guest speaker was Molly from the Virtually Legal podcast, who is also a current paralegal and future trainee solicitor. In the negotiation workshop, we actually learned some really amazing tips on how to approach a negotiation negotiation, and we practiced a scenario uh, using a worksheet that Let's Chilp Law created to help us get to a position statement in an example scenario. So this meant that attendees could take this away for future use in whatever negotiation competitions or assessment centers they participate in. Then we also have had our Let's Chat Lunch, which is our new version of a commercial awareness discussion in a friendly and safe environment with other aspiring lawyers. We're partnering with Little Law, which is really exciting. So this month we had one of their reporters, Amber Allen, to come on to the online Zoom event and talk about a new story which she wrote about last year, which is Amazon's proposed acquisition of MGM Studios, which is currently being reviewed by competition authorities in the EU and US. It should be really exciting. And then in March, we're gonna have more of the same, but hopefully an in-person workshop in various different cities around the UK about interviews. So this will hopefully be a really cool opportunity for people to practise mock interview questions in a very safe space. And we'll also have another online Let's Chat Lunch, focused on another commercial awareness news story of our choosing. So please stay tuned and follow Let's Chat Law on all the platforms and sign up to our mailing list so in terms of getting practical advice in relationship to improving your negotiation skills especially if you missed our negotiation workshop uh, at the start of this month we've got the interview for you or two interviews in fact gabby and i had a great chat with philip brown welcome philip to let's chat on the podcast um thank you for joining us today would you like to introduce yourself
2: yeah sure okay so yeah my name is philip brown um And actually, as an interesting fact, my background is actually procurement. So I've been a procurement professional for 25 years, Um, uh, worked in different companies, worked in different industries, and obviously, as part of procurement, negotiation skills is a fairly important skill to have. Um, uh, So I bought goods and services, I bought everything from steering wheels to millions of cuddly toys that have changed businesses, marketing strategies. And what I do now is I, deal, I still provide some of those services, but now I'm actually into coaching and developing negotiation skills for a new generation
1: amazing thank you so much again for joining us philly obviously you mentioned that you founded the negotiation club um, which me and hannah and the let's chat law team are massively interested in and think it's amazing Um, but what made you so passionate about deciding to obviously create a safe space for learning and to coach students and professionals about negotiation skills
2: well, I guess for me, um, when it comes to negotiation skills, I, I personally think that these are probably one of the, the most important skills you can have in a business, but it also it's an important skill for life. It's a life skill. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the skills that we've had to develop over generations and hundreds of generations. But I also know that the, the training and the coaching of negotiation skills really hasn't developed much or hasn't changed much in at least the last 40 years. And I can say that because uh, back in the early 1980s, my dad used to train negotiation skills and I actually used to go on his course because I used to be the one holding the camera up, all right, and videoing people doing negotiations. And the interesting thing is, is that those videos in the 1980s were very similar to the same videos that we'd had in the 2019, you know, 2019. Now, um, I, I started to go down the same route, but the interesting thing is when the pandemic hit, then obviously that face-to-face type of training really changed. But I had been trying to get cameras in front of people to try and show people how negotiation happens in first person. And when the pandemic hit, suddenly everybody's doing Zoom, you know, and they're doing Teams, so we've all got cameras in front of us. So I started to deliver my coaching online And I realized very, very quickly that this was perhaps one of the most effective ways of teaching and demonstrating coaching negotiation skills. Now, the interesting thing is, is that obviously lots of universities got hit, you know, students weren't able to go in and, you know, they were struggling as well. So I started to deliver these to students. I delivered or created a program to deliver it. And lo and behold, where I thought there'd be lots of business studies students coming along, the only ones that came along were law students. And I was just inundated by law students who wanted to understand how to negotiate. And this has worked phenomenally well. So, two years on, we've got, we've done over a thousand law students, we've done professionals, and we're doing more all the time. It is definitely an area now that I'm focused on because I think you guys and I think the generation of lawyers out there, this is a skill that absolutely fundamentally make a difference
1: I love that only law students came like law students are committed to learning new skills
2: I have been so impressed I mean really have I mean, I've had the occasional business and uh, MBA student, but generally speaking, it is law students that have been doing this. I mean, I'll give you one example. We do a lot of work with the University of Law. By the end of May, we will have done over 500. We will have had over 500 students in the last year and a half. Basically, they paid to come on this. And I think that's fantastic.
0: That's great news. And yes, to kind of add context to why law students are such big fans of negotiation is that, well, obviously, it's great, uh, it's very, uh, very useful uh, in the world of work, but also it's quite a common uh, assessment uh, at assessment centres. So for law students that obviously applying for training contracts and such, that is very commonly comes up as an assessment exercise. So negotiation is a way to settle differences and we encounter it, as we've mentioned um, in everyday life, whether at work or in social situations. Could you briefly tell us the process of negotiation between two parties?
2: Wow. Briefly. Okay. So a negotiation with it is when two parties, difference of position coming together and what you're trying to do is negotiate a satisfactory agreement between you. So I actually think negotiations is a fairly simple concept. And like I said, it's something that we've been doing for thousands of years, OK, as a, as, a, as a human race. That's what we've been doing. But I like to think of negotiations as a problem solving activity. But there is a twist. And I say this to everybody who comes on my course. OK, so the problem is two parties, difference of position. You need to find something that you can agree on as satisfactory to both parties. Now, generally speaking, there's different positions doesn't mean that there is only one solution. So if it was purely problem-solving, what you could do is just throw out ideas, and the very first idea that is acceptable by both parties, you agree to it. But in a negotiation, that's not the case. You're trying to find something which is agreeable to both parties, but your role as a negotiator is also to maximize the value that you can obtain in a negotiation, and that's the twist. So the skill of finding a solution to the problem is fairly easy. You could throw things out there, but as a negotiator, say... Uh, it takes a very very simple term. If I'm a buyer and there's a seller out there, the seller wants to sell an item. What they want to do is they want to sell a price as high as possible, and if I'm a buyer, I want to negotiate a price as low as possible. Now there may be a, a, an area where we could agree on it, but if I'm negotiating, I don't want to just agree any position. I want to maximize my value. So I'm trying to get down to one side, the other person is trying to get to the other. So in negotiation. Although it is trying to solve that problem, it's also trying to maximise your value. And that's really what this is about.
1: That's amazing. Um, It's amazing to see kind of your examples of it and how really we do it in everyday life. Before obviously coming to the hypothetical negotiation table, um, it's really important to obviously plan and anticipate what the opposing party is gonna propose and what they're going to suggest. So firstly, can you explain what BATNA is? And then will you go on to explain how we determine BATNA?
2: Right. Okay. So here we go. If uh, there, There's two parts to a really effective negotiation. The first part is the job knowledge, and the next part is the business, the, your personal skill. Right, and again, I explain this to people, and we see it in examples, but that job knowledge is all of that experience, the market research, the client information, supply chains, etc. The personal skill in negotiation are things like active listening, questioning, observation, numeracy. So, in a negotiation, it's a combination of those two things. Now, when you're going into a negotiation, when people refer to things like a BATNA, okay, which is a best alternative to a negotiated out agreement, yeah, what we're saying there is we're saying, look, if I have not gone out and had a negotiation with anybody else, I have to use my job knowledge to try and determine what is my tipping point. What's the point at which I won't agree with the other party? So I might do research. uh, I might go and ask people about the market. I might talk to people else who've been out there. So I'm going to come up with a potentially fictitious position. Now, you might term that your BATNA. Okay, that's the point at which I'm going to walk away. Now, when you go into a negotiation, for me personally, throw away the BATNA. All right, You do not want to be thinking about that. You know what that is. The role of a negotiation, the real skill of a negotiator is to negotiate with the other party to try to identify what their position is, what their walkaway position is. We know what ours is. We don't know what theirs is. So the real skill of a negotiator is to focus a thousand percent on the other party. Now, when you get to the end of the negotiation, then you can look at your BATNA or your alternative and you say, right, okay, if I've done my job, I've maximized the value on that zone. And now I compare it with what I think I can walk away with or not. And I make a decision at a point. Now, the other BATNA is when you have done that once already, or maybe several times. So you've actually got a list of alternative agreements. Now, when you have a negotiation, not only are you still focused 100% a thousand percent on the other party but you've now got some alternatives that you can pick up and go to if this one doesn't pick up all right so for me the batner is what I would term like a tipping point a walk away point but the batner is either something which is um, preordained because you've already had agreements in the past or it's a fictitious element that you've got to come up with in order to give yourself some judgment call as well does that make does that make sense
0: yeah, it definitely does. Thank you very much for explaining that in such a clear and articulate way. And also it's great to hear that because I've done some negotiation exercises and workshops myself, and I've definitely found that we do focus on BATNA as, you know, that's kind of the point uh, that you need to focus on in terms of negotiation instead of, you know, looking at it as, yeah, a tipping point or the point of walking away. Uh, so that's very helpful.
2: Anyway, let mate, let me, let me just explain one more bit on that, okay? So we haven't talked about what I do and I use negotiation cards. And the way the negotiation cards is that I would give you a card and I would have a card. You have yours, I have mine, and we need to negotiate. What I do sometimes and what the other person doesn't know is that when I show them their card, I don't even look at my card. I literally do not look at what my budget is or what my break-even point is. Because I know a little bit about what the market's going to like. So when I do my practice negotiation, I am entirely focused on seeing what I can achieve that's satisfactory to those, but as close to them as they possibly can. In the dying seconds, I will turn my card over and I will know at that point whether I can agree what I've negotiated or not. I see it time and time again where somebody has a position and it's their, it's their budget and they will be focused on thinking, yeah, I've got a great deal. Because they're focused on what they had and what the deal is at the outcome. And they entirely forget that the negotiation is not about them. It's about the other party. So, yeah, that, that, that that's just my perspective on it.
1: That's amazing. Um, it's interesting how you use the cards and to actually see what you what you obviously do and how you teach. So from your observations, what do you think are the common mistakes people make during negotiations? Because obviously you mentioned focusing on BATNA would probably be a mistake, but what other mistakes do you think there are?
2: So if there's a few mistakes that I see time and time again, now then. That- Let me put this into context. I go back to that job knowledge and that personal skill side. Okay, so a lot of people talk about the planning, the preparation, the strategy for going into a negotiation. Now, I actually feel that there is a massive emphasis on planning. The problem is, is there is a less of an emphasis on execution. So I see people say, right, plan, 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 plan. That's great, because actually the planning is relatively easy. All right. You just find as much information as you can. But if you're sat opposite that person in a room, unless you know how to negotiate and how to execute the information you've got, the planning in the end of it makes no difference whatsoever. The first thing I would say is that the biggest failure that most people do is they don't practice the simple stuff of being in the negotiation. My practice negotiations, they're only four minutes long and they're always four minutes long. They're not 30 minutes. They're not an hour. And the reason they're four minutes long is because that is long enough to try something as a tactic, as a strategy, short enough to be able to go back and review it. And then with the negotiation cards, have another go. Pick another card, have another go. One of the best ways of describing it is if you wanted to learn how to play tennis, one way you could do it is go down and just play a game after a game after game after game. Okay, So you just keep playing a game of tennis again and again. If you really want to get good at tennis, what you do is you go down to the tennis court and you get a bucket of balls and you practice your serve. Then when you're playing a game, you might be called upon to make a serve or to do a backhand. But because you practice them and you've really focused your attention on them, you're going to be much better in that game of tennis. That is exactly the same when it comes to negotiation skills. Just focus on how to ask an open question. Forget everything else. How do I ask an open question? Because when you go into that negotiation, you've made assumptions. You now need to test those assumptions. You test them by asking questions. Practice how to ask questions allows you to get that planning and everything else aligned. So the first thing is, is people forget how to do the execution and they don't practice it. Now, a couple of easy ones that I would say as well is there's another one which most people fail at or rather is a a problem and that is they tend to make a proposal but they tend to couch it in soft language and what I mean by that again I'll just take a commercial example okay if I'm selling you something uh, say I am trying to negotiate you with you my day rate as a lawyer all right and I say, you know uh, Mr. client, yeah look listen you know my day rate it's about 800 pound a day. I've just couched it in soft language. I've just put about in front of my 800. the client already knows that that's not the purely the confident position. So if I turn around and I said, look, Gabrielle, my uh, my day rates, they're £800 a day. If you say it with confidence, you remove the soft language, you're saying exactly the same thing. But actually, it comes across differently. And if you come across confidently, that other party, they are going to feel confident in your response. So if you can, avoid soft language as well. So there's a few of the ones, if I've got hundreds, but there's a few of them to think about. That's
1: amazing. Thank you. Um, and it's interesting, obviously, when you sound confident, people start to trust you. Um, I think that's really, and if you say it about or the soft, use soft language, you kind of make people question what you're saying.
2: That, that is absolutely the case. And again, this is why you can still practice that. So, for example, in a negotiation, you're almost always going to get some form of rejection. So be practice how you're going to respond to that. So many people find it difficult to say no because they don't know how to say no.
0: Well, no, thanks so much for sharing those tips. And before we wrap up this interview, we wanted to ask, as you've already mentioned, you've been coaching a lot of law students throughout uh, the last couple of years. And you've also worked with a lot of universities like the University of Law. So negotiation, as we've already discussed, is a core skill for lawyers and it's a common task at assessment centres. Do you have a top tip for aspiring lawyers about how to master negotiation skills or how to approach an assessment centre with a negotiation exercise?
2: Again, I do this with everybody. I'll tell you what my top three I guess tactics are in a negotiation okay and you'll be surprised at what they are okay the first one i've kind of already mentioned open questions in a negotiation negotiation is all about movement but we have to create that movement and we create that movement by asking lots of open questions because the more questions we ask the more information we get the more information we get the more opportunities we can build so whether it's in a an assessment center or anything else first thing you need to do ask questions now, the interesting thing about asking questions is if you ask the questions, you actually almost take control of the negotiations as well. OK, so that's a subtle that's a side thing. OK, but certainly asking questions, open questions, particularly. Now, the other thing is, if you're in those negotiations, uh, even if you're in interviews, is to use summarizing. Summarize the position and don't leave it to the very end, because even at the end of a negotiation or at the end of an interview, you may actually have made a mis- mistake, misunderstood, misheard, whatever it is. So throughout those negotiations, throughout an interview, keep summarizing what you've heard. There's a couple of things about summarizing as well. And again, I tell this to people, first things first is that when you summarize, you're actually helping the other party as well as yourself, because you're checking that you're all on the same page. Now, if you do something in a negotiation that is helping the other party, they will also buy into that. They'll also build that relationship with you, feel more confident with you. And there's a couple of other things when you come to summarizing as well. And again, this is what you can do in assessment center and they'll hear it. And that is to label it. Label that you are going to summarize. So for example, Hannah Mae, I might just say, look, okay. So um, Hannah Mae, let me just summarize what I think I've just heard. What you're saying is that we have a client who's in this particular situation who wants to achieve this, X, Y, and Z. When you summarise and you label it, what you're also doing is you're telling the party that I don't agree and I don't disagree, I'm just checking the facts. If you don't label it, often it can come across, potentially come across as an acceptance or as an acknowledgement. So label it. And the final thing I would say, and this is really important, is that negotiations are always about movement, but they should always be conditional movements. So if I'm going to move my position, I'm going to do it for a reason. I want a condition. I want something from you in order for me to move. And the best way and the simplest terminology for this is if you, then we, or then I. So if you, uh, I use my example, if you buy uh, if you buy two tons, and I use apples, but if you buy two tons, then I will reduce my price down to 500 pound a ton, whatever it is. The point is, is that's the format that you want to use. Okay. If you don't and you agree to a movement because you've been asked to or because you feel like it, I always say that you're feeding the animal. All right, you're feeding the animal of greed because all you'll find is the other party is then going to keep asking for more. And once you start asking for something in return, it's going to be harder to do that. So for anybody listening, for any young lawyers there, OK, uh, and this is the same whether you're in an interview or whether you're in negotiations or in these case studies. OK, if you can do those three things, then you're already 80 percent there of having a great outcome. Ask questions, summarize. And with the information you've got, make trades through the if you then we approach. Does that does that help to answer?
1: Yeah, that helps. Thank you again so much. It's been extremely helpful and I certainly have learned a lot by chatting with you. So I'm sure all our listeners have as well. So just to follow up, where can people find you? Because I'm sure a lot of people and a lot of listeners will want to find obviously yourself and the negotiation club. So how would you want people to contact you?
2: So um, I do a lot of work through LinkedIn. Okay, for me, LinkedIn is where it's at. And actually, again, for uh, young, aspiring um, lawyers, that is definitely where you need to start developing your personal brand as well. Okay, so make sure you've got something good on LinkedIn. Now, I am on LinkedIn. If you look me up, Philip Brown, or you look up the Negotiation Club, I do a lot of posting through the Negotiation Club. And it's a way of people getting in touch with me. Now, I'm focused on building that as a community as well. So I, I'm more than happy to share what other coaching people, other comp, you know, competition to me. My goal is to try to encourage and develop this skill in the next generation. And, and, and that's why at the end of the day, if you were to come along, you were to follow, or if you ask questions or connect up, I'm more than happy to help that way. And of course, we have, um, we have the website as well. And I've also got a little bit of the news as well, is that I am actually looking now at getting the courses that we do run CPD accredited. Now, if they're CPD accredited, what that means is that obviously when you attend and you participate, that can go towards some of those law credentials as well. And the final bit with that is that one of the things that always really upset me with training companies was that the training would be great, but where do I go and practice afterwards? The negotiation club is all about the practice afterwards. It's that bucket of balls, come down and practice. And you do that in that safe environment. So when you go out, you're going to be much better than if you just did the training and that's it. So join me in LinkedIn, check out the, the website. Um, I'm, I've got an open door, so you know, just get in touch.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I'm sure many people will. And
2: I, I know I probably will as well. Well, you'll be joining a good crowd. There's plenty of, there's plenty of law students at the moment, that's for sure.
0: Thanks so much. Um, do you have anything else that you want us to ask you,
2: Philip? I think there's, there is there is one particular skill that I do focus on, probably more than any other skill, and that is actually the skill of observation. I alluded it to at the beginning with the Batner side of thing, which is, look, you know, I know my position. I do not know the other party's position. So the real skill of negotiation is not being clever about our own position, but it's observing the other party. And one final example of that is that, you know, when you're in a negotiation, you're going to get a rejection, but there are different types of rejection. So a real negotiator is going to make a proposal. They're going to get a rejection. They know they're going to get a rejection. But what they're using that rejection is to try to identify whether that is a rejection that that party cannot do it or it's a rejection that they can do it, but they want something extra. And they're very subtle. And the only and I mean this, the only way you can develop that skill is through practice. Right, absolutely so that's probably my final piece so um hopefully it has been useful for everybody and, and to be honest ladies i've really enjoyed myself as well i i it's a passion for me
0: no thank you so much and i,
1: I love the last tip I, I was gonna make a joke when he mentioned like people don't say no and i was like that's the law students like personality trait like we do not say no ever
2: i mean i, I have tactic cards i have these tactic cards i use in the training One of them is is just use no, say no. And the challenge you have as lawyers, the challenge you have as students as well is that you don't really have any types of negotiation training as such. You know, you might touch on it within the law, you might do muting and a few other things. But when it comes to negotiations, you will be negotiating from even before you even join. The interviews are a form of negotiation. But when you're in a law society, you have to negotiate with potential clients as well as the other party. So it's an entire negotiation, and then you negotiate with people internally as well. So get, get the basics right, and I'll tell you, it'll be great. You, you guys need to come along and do the workshop with me. That's, that's, that's the only answer. Yeah, I'm tempted. I'm very tempted now.
0: So our next guest was Lillian Adebayo. Welcome, Lillian, to Let's Chat Law, the podcast. Would you like to int- introduce yourself?
3: Hi, Anna. Well, um, as you say, my name is Lillian, um, and I'm an associate at Brian Cave, Lays and Paisner, or BCLP for short, um, specializing in MA and corporate finance. So that's essentially the buying, selling, merging, and financing of companies. I'm currently four years PQE. Originally, I actually trained at Charles and Hamlins before moving to BCLP um, after two years. So I've been at BCLP since March 2020. Um, and I've actually just returned from a six month secondment at Lloyd's Banking Group as well.
1: Thank you so much for introducing yourself and for joining us today. To go on to an icebreaker question I feel like everyone has a favourite
3: legal book or movie so what's yours? Probably I'm not going to say anything serious to be honest with you I think probably everyone's kind of favourite even if it's a guilty pleasure is probably Legally Blonde perhaps a a darker legal film that I don't mind watching is The Firm which has Tom Cruise in it if you haven't seen that it's worth a a little bit of a watch Um, and then obviously you've got your legal dramas like suits and things like that which I I enjoyed when it was on and then in terms of books I must admit where you read so much in your day job reading legal books on the side is not exactly what you love however I have recently purchased uh, Lady Hale's biography more recently which I haven't started yet but I will hopefully start so yeah shout out to Lady Hale and if you don't have her book go and grab it.
0: Yeah, that one is definitely on my reading list too. And yeah, The Firm, I recently watched it and it's it's really good. Very intense, but scary, but definitely a, a good watch. Could, you could definitely watch it, uh, pick up different things as well. So yeah, thank you for sharing that and some great recommendations. Before we crack on to, with the negotiation questions, we wanted to ask you first, why did you choose to qualify into M&A and in corporate finance?
3: So I actually have a bit of a, I don't know, a, a slightly different path um, in the sense that I actually, when I qualified at Trowers, I was actually doing half of what I was doing was commercial, so um, commercial contracts, and then the other half was corporate, so M&A. So I was kind of this weird hybrid lawyer, um, kind of doing a bit of everything. But then I started to realize that I really enjoyed fast paced nature of the M&A work, whereas the commercial contracts work was just, it was, it was a lot slower in pace, um, and I think commercial contracts sometimes you tend to work more in isolation because it's just about kind of you reviewing the contract or going back to the other side and things like that. Whereas uh, M&A, you work with a number of different departments and you're almost like the lead project manager for transactions and you have to liaise with, you know, the tax team, the employment team, pensions, competition, just a variety of teams. So. I think a combination of the fast pace interacting with a number of different people internally and externally is probably what led me to corporate as opposed to maybe something else where, for example, like litigation, where, you know, the focus is kind of solely on the law. I think there's a lot of action in uh, M&A and the buying and selling of companies is actually something that everyone can understand and you know everyone is impacted by I like that aspect the fact that you know the work that I'm doing actually has a tangible impact in the real world as well. That's amazing and
1: it, it's nice to kind of hear and see your passion about it um, so in terms of obviously going on to the context of merger and acquisitions how, um, how does negotiation come into like playing into settling agreements between two parties how does that work
3: yeah so I think in the MA context I think negotiation plays a massive part because there are so many documents that it takes to make sale or purchase happen so as I said in M&A the bulk of what you're doing is well at least for me anyway is you know the buying selling reorganization uh, mergers of companies and all the different things that companies can do Um, and as a result there's a lot of documentation that goes along with that um, from the sale agreement to more ancillary documents more bespoke documents as well and every step of the way you're having to kind of negotiate with the, the other side so whether that be the buyer or the seller as to you know agreeing those documents in order to make the transaction happen so I think you have kind of your big negotiations, perhaps the more classic ones that people may think of where, you know, parties sit around a table or in this virtual world, I suppose, um, have large conference calls where everyone kind of comes together to discuss and negotiate the outstanding points. So you might have the, the buyer side, the seller side, and you all get together in a room, and the different teams of lawyers and perhaps even the clients themselves to try and iron out the point, but then you have kind of smaller negotiations along the way and I think as a trainee an NQ uh, I and mean, even as a junior lawyer those are really the negotiations that you play a part in where you're going to have these smaller ancillary documents so perhaps not the the key documents but they still play a part in the transaction so you might have front end of a disclosure letter or resignation letters or smaller kind of Documents that require a bit of back and forth. So you might draft it and send it to the other side, and then they'll mark it up with their comments or their thoughts and they'll send it back to you. And even though that doesn't necessarily feel like a classic negotiation where you're off the table from somebody, that is negotiation where you're kind of trading documents back and forth with markups and comments. And yes, I'll accept this. No, we can't accept that word or those terms or whatever it may be. So I think there are those kind of two different styles of negotiation and as a junior, you're probably more involved in the latter, but everything that we kind of do in the M&A corporate finance team requires negotiation just due to kind of the, the volume of documents that we deal with and the nature of the transactions that we're doing where it's kind of like two often opposing parties that just are trying to get a deal done.
0: That's so interesting to hear. And it's nice to yeah hear what, um, you know, as a junior lawyer, you would uh, get up to. I just wanted to ask a quick question, uh, following up on your comment about now with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, has negotiations moving online, has that kind of helped or hindered uh,
3: the process? Maybe sounding a bit optimistic, but I think maybe it's actually helped in a way. Because, I, you know, when you're talking across the phone, perhaps sometimes you're a bit more conscious about what you're saying. You have more time to react as well when you're on the phone or even doing a video call. Whereas sometimes when you're in person, you feel kind of the eyes on you and the pressure to maybe react or say something immediately. So from that perspective, in terms of giving people maybe longer to respond and react, I think it's, it's been good. I think maybe not so good sometimes in terms of the way things are taken, um, especially if it's not a video call and it's just a phone call. Sometimes over phone, you can't really see people's expressions and mannerisms. So you might think they're giving off one thing when actually that wasn't necessarily their intention. But generally, I think um, I haven't necessarily encountered any specific problems or issues with having these kind of virtual negotiation calls or anything like that so I think from that perspective it has largely been been fine and everyone's kept it professional and that's the main thing I think earlier we were talking about sometimes some of the interruptions that you can get um, and actually I think that's made everybody a bit more human because obviously you know when you're doing things in person you're in that office environment everybody is suited and booted you don't necessarily get a flavor of their personality all the time but actually having these virtual calls you might hear that dog in the background you might hear that child randomly pop in it reminds you of the fact that you know everybody is is human here and actually we're all you know nice and friendly people just trying to get the work done so sometimes it helps as an icebreaker or to make relations seem more friendly
0: that's great to hear that's really interesting uh, to your perspective it, it definitely I think yeah hu- humanizing the other side can really help uh, in hopefully negotiation um, do you have any anecdotes that you want to share about when you've used negotiation in a commercial
3: context perhaps not a, a full anecdote but I think one thing that I've definitely encountered and I think every kind of newly qualified or junior solicitor will encounter at least once in their career if they haven't encountered it already and I think as a trainee too is you know just dealing with difficult people I think last year I was working on a transaction and again this was more kind of the the latter style of negotiation I was talking about where you're kind of trading markups back and forth you know it's about maybe deleting or not accepting certain wording or certain provisions and vice versa I came across someone who, who was quite difficult. So it's like we were trading the markups and I think they gave me a call because they didn't like the fact that I had, you know, deleted this provision or that it wasn't acceptable to us. And, you know, they were really going at it over the phone. And to me, in the grand scheme of the transaction, this was like one of the ancillary documents. So it wasn't really anything to get up in arms about. And I had to diffuse the situation just by kind of reminding the person that we're kind of all on the same team, even though you may be acting for the buyer and I for the seller, we're all trying to get the deal done. So let's not fight or argue about this, but let's think about your interests. What are my interests? What is the solution that we can come up with so that, you know, we're both happy with the document and it can be agreed? And I think that's something that, you know, you're probably going to encounter across various points in your career. But I think that's definitely a noticeable moment. I think that I remember in recent times where negotiation, it just got a bit prickly. Um, And then you have to kind of remember to just diffuse the situation and separate people from the problem and not take it personally, but just realize that actually, this person is really just relaying a problem. They may not necessarily have an issue with you personally. So just trying not to be offended by perhaps their tone or the way they're phrasing things and just think about right exactly what is the problem you're trying to communicate here and how do we work to resolve it
1: that's interesting to see how you kind of diffuse a situation but also deal with obviously different people's characteristics and personalities and how they react to situations so on that note how do you negotiate with like multiple parties at the same time
3: I think negotiating with multiple parties is always a bit tricky. And actually I'm working on a transaction at the moment where there are quite a few parties involved. And I think the approach to that is well, one, being organized and making sure you don't leave anybody out, making sure that everybody has seen documents that are being negotiated. And two, just reminding everyone what the kind of picture is. Because I think when there are a lot of parties, everyone has their own interests and their own positions and you know what's important to them and sometimes people lose sight of that bigger picture like yeah there's a transaction that we're trying to do or um you know there's a, another type of deal that we're trying to get done so it's just about making sure that people remember that yes your comments are valid but in the grand scheme of the transaction how much of an impact does this have is this something that we can give on for us to get this across the line so and sometimes it's it, just requires like an all parties call or an all parties meeting where everyone's into the same forum to hash out what the issues are and what can be done about them but yeah I would probably just say you know being organized and making sure everybody's in the loop and then just reminding people of the bigger picture while still recognizing their concerns are valid.
0: I think that's um, a really good lesson for negotiation, but also life in general. Um, yeah, ensuring good communication is, is always a good and important thing. Moving on to a common saying in negotiation, which is whoever makes the first offer or throws out the first prize loses. We were wondering, do you agree with this?
3: I suppose you have to take things in context, but generally I would probably say no. I wouldn't necessarily say you lose by showing your hand first. And actually, sometimes I think the first offer can help to focus everybody's mind on actually what is acceptable or not acceptable. And sometimes that first offer has the ability to dictate or heavily influence what the other side kind of counters with. So I I definitely wouldn't say it's a a bad thing, but I would caveat that with ever going to make the first offer. You have to give yourself room to manoeuvre because everyone well most of the time the first offer is not accepted so you need to have you need to have built in some leeway there so i don't know just a basic example if you're going to offer the number five you have to have maneuvered that so actually you're happy to accept the number three just in case because they're not they may not accept five as the offer so You you just have to build in that room. It's almost like when you buy a house, you might come in with your first offer. You know, I'm going to buy this house for X hundreds of thousands. But then, then going to say, well, actually, no, we don't accept that offer. What's your next offer? So, but you would have built in your strategy and all of that. So yeah, you need to leave room to maneuver. And I would also just say, you know, if you're going to make the first offer, don't make it outrageous because otherwise it's just going to get rejected straight out and then, everyone kind of loses motivation or focus moving forward and then you also seem that little bit less credible so don't make any outrageous offers but try and make it perhaps more in line with what you think the other party can accept maybe as a minimum.
1: Um, That's interesting and good top tips for people that obviously even that are making offers on houses i know that a lot of people struggle with that so what we found out is that a lot of aspiring lawyers don't really have the skills for negotiation or aren't taught them at an early stage in their career or early stage in life so do you have any like top tips for aspiring lawyers when approaching assessment centers with like negotiation
3: exercises perhaps for those at university if you have you know, some kind of debating society or something like that, perhaps getting involved. It's not mandatory. I was probably in the debating society for the best part of a term. So it's not mandatory, but I think it does help in terms of just giving you exposure and enabling you to kind of practice those key skills in terms of hearing other people's arguments, being able to respond to them and just getting comfortable and familiar with having to challenge and be challenged so I think that's a good starting point but if society doesn't exist at your university or wherever you whatever stage you're at in your legal journey I think practice is key I wouldn't say the first time you ever Experience a negotiation is in an assessment centre. And I think there organisations like Aspiring Solicitors, for example, they provide workshops and competitions that you can join in order to practise, like, debating and negotiation a bit more. I'm sure sometimes universities set up workshops. Uh, I know that I was involved in similar workshops at City University. So, I, you know, I know that that does happen. And then sometimes just practising with a friend or somebody else who's on that legal journey with you just getting negotiation exercises from the internet and just practicing them just so that you can get comfortable with that as I said the idea of challenging of being challenged and just understanding the basic kind of concepts of negotiation and doing research as well because I do think that when you're going into these assessment centers you need to be prepared and understanding what negotiation truly is and it's not a win or lose but often it really just about how you can in the middle resolve the any issues work on a solution and in assessment centres, that's what they're looking for they're looking for people who can work with others to find solutions in order for their client to be happy so I think it's it's key that you basically understand what negotiations are about and a lot of that is available on the internet there are so many resources that even if you just type in negotiation for hiring solicitors you will find something and it's just good to read up on it and have that basic understanding and then practicing as I said and then in terms of when you're actually at the assessment center I think you need to preparation is key so normally at assessment centers they give you some time before you actually start your negotiation and in that time you need to be thinking about what are must haves, the things that we kind of can't give up on And then what are the things that maybe we can give up on just in case? And then what do we want to leave this negotiation having achieved? What are the key things that we want to have achieved from this? And also understanding what your client's interests are. And I think negotiation should be about interests and not positions. So it's not about I want this and I want that, but it's about the underlying rationale to that. Because when you understand why your client or the party that you're advocating for wants something, then it's easier to come up with solutions for that. So for example, you know, as an anecdote, there might be two people who are fighting over an orange, right? And there's only one orange. So one person is saying, well, I want the orange. Another person saying, well, no, I want the orange. But actually, if you look behind their positions and actually ask, okay, so why do you need the orange? What do you need to use it for? Then it might turn out that party A just needs the rind of the orange and party B just needs the juice of the orange. So actually, you can work together to resolve the issue because party A will go and grate the rind off and then give it to party B who will then cut it and use the juice and then you're both happy. But you wouldn't know that unless you ask the relevant question. So sometimes negotiation, it's about remembering about interests and trying to ascertain what the other party's interests are in order to come up with those solutions. So yeah, when you're in that kind of negotiation context in an assessment center, prepare by all means and have those things that you can and you can't give up and what you want to kind of walk away with as a minimum, but also make sure you're asking the other party questions because a lot of the time, especially if you've never been in a negotiation before, you're just going to say, "Well, this is what our client wants. But then that you know, you need to be asking, okay, so why do they want that? Is there something that they're willing to give up? Have you thought about this? Would this work? So just proposing different things to them, making sure you're asking open questions rather than questions that will just lead to yes or no. I think that that will really help. And hopefully, by doing all of that, you're able to kind of come to a, a conclusion within, the allotted time and you will prove yourself um, as someone who knows you know at least kind of what they're doing in negotiations and you have the ability to work with people but yeah i think the main thing they're looking for is you being able to you know work with people to come up with that common solution so that should just be in everyone's mind when they go into assessment centers don't be too adversarial and horrible and you know demanding things because that's That's just not going
0: to look good. No, thank you so much. And that's, yeah, definitely a good thing to remember before you go into an assessment centre. That is not, yeah, it's not a fight. It's hopefully going to be a win-win situation for all the parties involved. So thank you very much for sharing all all your amazing negotiation tips. Finally, we always ask all of our, like, lawyer guests uh, this question. Do you have a final top tip for aspiring lawyers, whether negotiation-related
3: or in general? Well, in terms of top tips, I would probably say... Don't take rejection personally. If this is really something that you want to do, give it 110%. And I truly mean that, a real 110%. Because at least then, perhaps if it doesn't work out, you can say that you've given it all that you have. Give it everything you have. Stay focused. Don't take rejection personally try and build as many connections as you can because that always helps in terms of speaking to other people about assessment centres, interviews, things like that, because the more you're able to be in that community, the more information that you will acquire. If you're making friends with people who are applying to similar places as you, they may have interviews before you. So you can say, oh, you know, what were the questions? And then they can give those to you and you can prepare better. So it's always good to make sure that you're building a strong network along the way and also a lot of people that you encounter at an aspiring solicitor stage you know a lot of them make it to solicitors and then at least you have people across multiple firms that you can say oh yeah you know I know so and so or you can keep the the community going and keep speaking to them throughout your career and getting tips and hints and things like that so I think building that community that network is really key I think at the aspiring solicitor stage don't take it for granted and think oh it's only when I've made it that I'll start making friends because people are important at this stage as well
1: Thank you so much for that. And I think um, myself and Hannah massively agree with that point in terms of networking and building up a community. And that's what Let's Chat Law is all about. So it's been amazing speaking to you. And I know I've learned a lot about negotiation in general, but also in a commercial context as a lawyer and real life context, especially if we're all fighting over oranges. Um, at least i know how to deal with that situation but if any of you want to connect with lillian i'm sure she's happy to do so via linkedin but i'm sure most people have learned so much from this so thank you again
3: no worries at all it
0: was a pleasure the let's chat law team wants to say a big thank you to philip and lillian for coming on the podcast to share their stories and advice if you want to find out more about both our guests we've put their social media links in this episode show notes
1: And as I mentioned before, Lana and Roman recently participated in a final round negotiation competition where they placed second, which is absolutely amazing. So, Lana, do you want to explain what competition you participated in?
4: Hi, my name is Lana and me and my teammate Rahman recently participated in the National Negotiations Competition in Ireland. And as mentioned, we came second. It has been truly an exhilarating experience and I can't wait to tell you all about it today.
0: That's amazing. Congratulations again. So what did you actually have to do in the negotiation competition?
4: In short, we were tasked to negotiate a deal. We represented one party and we had to achieve certain requirements for our clients. The success of the competition depends on our ability to achieve those requirements in a non-hostile manner and try and reach a conclusion that will aid both parties.
1: Lana, that sounds so difficult but really interesting and I'm sure a lot of students want to get involved. Um, So have you got any top tips for those that want to get involved with negotiation competitions or exercises?
4: Our tips for students that want to get involved in the competition is to follow the Harvard principles of negotiating. These principles helped us largely in reaching the finals, and most importantly, don't be afraid to take a risk. Ask those hard questions during the negotiations, because I can assure you that this will only improve your argument and help you win the competition.
1: So I don't know about other people, but I am useless with negotiation and don't know a lot about it until filming the podcast. So can you explain what are the Harvard negotiation principles, please?
4: Absolutely. So the Harvard principles consist of four principles, separate the person from the issue, staying interest-oriented while negotiating with the other team, develop good criteria that a good solution must fulfill, and develop several options. That's really helpful to
0: know. I've already learned something new today uh, during this podcast recording. So we've had a listener question for you, which you might be able to help answer given your recent experience. How do you communicate effectively with your teammate during the negotiation?
4: That is one aspect that we struggled with quite a bit. I think planning in advance and allocating which part of the deal each member would discuss definitely improves communication. But other than that, just try and engage with each other during the competition.
1: So moving on to the next listener question, we have Queenie um, to help discuss them with us. So Queenie, would you like to introduce yourself?
5: Hi, I'm Queenie. I'm the final year law student at the University of Success and I'm the podcast editor at Last Shot Law Team. So the listener question
1: is submitted by an LLB student who asks, what is the best mindset to enter into a negotiation with?
5: Everyone is afraid to make the first move when we enter the negotiation table. Based on several rounds of experience, the best mindset is to be open-minded and flexible. And you have to be ready to give concession and plan thoroughly for many different possible outcomes.
0: So Queenie, do you have any top tips for getting into this mindset?
5: What I would say, I will have four tips First, we need to state the facts right. When we represent a party, we will need to state the position early, clearly in the very beginning, and we will state our goals in a negotiation. And second, we'll clarify all the facts right through active questioning. If we are in doubt, we always ask actively throughout the negotiation. Thirdly, we need to define our priorities. When different issues come up, you could ask the other party to define the importance of different priorities. When you know about whether these issues are less important, then it can help you strategically plan those concessions. And finally, the most important thing is to search for the common grounds and to be ready to adjust the attitude to negotiate.
0: Thank you very much, Queenie, for those top tips. That's really helpful for our listeners. OK, next up, it's the commercial awareness update on today's podcast, presented by Sonali Jane, one of our Let's Chat Law
6: ambassadors. Sonali, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sonali and I'm a lawyer in India and I'm currently doing my master's at the University of Manchester. And as you mentioned, I'm also an ambassador with the Let's Chat Law team.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you want to share what your top commercial story is this month?
6: So the topic of the story that I have picked is to talk about ring fencing. So in January from 2019, large UK banks are supposed to separate their investment banking and their retail banking sectors. So according to me, this is a fallout from the 2008 crisis and how if one sector fails, it will just be easier to manage that failure without any government bailout.
1: That's really interesting, Sonali. So thank you so much for sharing the story. But what I'd love to know is why did you choose this topic?
6: So one of the reasons I've picked this new story is that even though uh, these recommendations
7: came out in 2011 and were put to force only in 2019, I personally believe that it didn't receive the light that it should have, given that it is something that will change the banking Infrastructure and sector as a whole, and it also affects investment. And also, given the COVID 19 pandemic, at this point, we understand that people are really scared, and there are a lot of things that are out of control. But one thing that you know can be controlled both by the government and by the people is their money. And this extra layer of security is something that's really important, and I feel like it's um, just An interesting thing to know, even if you're not from the legal sector as just a taxpayer or just as a citizen, I would like to know that my money is protected. So it's why I think it's an interesting story.
1: Thank you so much for that. Um, So do you want to give us background on the ring fencing story and what it is?
7: So um, to give you a background, after the collapse of the Lehman Brothers in 2008, The UK and the UK government gave support packages for the Lloyds Banking Group after its acquisitions of Royal Bank of Scotland and HPOS in 2008. So as response to this crisis, the government established an independent commission on banking. So this commission was led by John Vickers, and he came up with banking reforms to promote financial stability and competition in the UK. So in the 2011 report, they proposed a package of measures designed to make banks better able to absorb their losses, to make it easier to re- reduce how costly it is to repair banks that face difficulties and to curb incentives for banks to take excessive risks. So in particular, one of the measures was having banks, large UK banks to ring fence themselves. They also had other recommendations like greater level of capital and other resources to absorb the losses that banks might face. That
1: sounds really interesting, Sonala. Could you give an example of how ring fencing
7: works? So an illustration would be um, Portland General Electric was acquired by Enron in 1997. So as part of this deal, the company was ring fenced by the state of Oregon So when Enron declared bankruptcy, as we all know, because of shady accounting, um, the state electric company's assets, they were protected from Enron's creditors. And this was only possible because it was ring-fenced. And if not, Portland Electric Company would be paying off Enron's creditors. So this is maybe a positive illustration as to how it can create a, a security net for people.
0: So what are the implications of
7: ring fencing? So what are the implications of ring fencing? So one implication of problem is that if one type of activity in a bank can disrupt its ability to provide service in other areas, but ring fencing will separate the separation of core banking services. So taking deposits, making payments, providing overdrafts for UK retail customers and small businesses would be separated from other activities that banks undertake. So even though this will protect these core services from problems which may arise in a different part of the banking group, there also could be a knock-on effect on other sectors. But some may argue that ring-fencing banks could increase the cost of borrowing for firms. But this is because they can't use profitable sectors of one bank to absorb the losses of a different sector. That's so interesting.
1: Do you think that it will actually make the retail side of um, banking
7: any safer in a global credit crunch? Definitely, because the separation of retail and an investment arm will incur higher costs. The banking industry claims that it will cost £7 billion, which could lead to higher charges for consumers But you could also think about it as taxpayers are still the ones that are paying for government bailouts to banks. So I feel like it would be offsetting. So does this mean that
0: ring fencing will make retail banking a bit more expensive for us?
7: Uh, I think that it might help to some extent. For example, if you take the Lehman Brothers, their collapse sparked the credit crunch, right? So they were only an investment bank and they didn't have a retail arm. And also you have to take into account the size of the bank. But in this case, until 1970s, the bank's assets as a percentage of the GDP remained steady at 50%. But in 2006, after decades of deregulation, the same assets as a percentage is more than 500%. So I feel like splitting banks into retail and investment divisions still leaves scope for government needing to bail banks out. If it was not the Lehman Brothers and a bank such as the Barclays, that has both retail and investment arms. Obviously, if the investment decision or investment sector of Barclays faced any difficulty, it would be easier to let it fail. And it still might have an effect on retail savings, even though in theory they can and will be separated.
1: That's so interesting. I feel like I'm learning so much from today. Thank you so much for that, Sonali. So moving to the more light-hearted side of the show, we're going to refer to our fun fact of the month, and we have Betty, who's going to discuss it with us. So Betty, would you like to introduce yourself?
8: Hi guys, I'm Betty. I'm an LLM LPC student and I'm one of the editors in the Chat Law team. Thank you for joining us, Betty. So would
1: you like to tell us about your fun fact for this month? Yes,
8: yeah, so this month's fun fact is about the Colin and Copper drama. That was a social media frenzy, April 2021. Um, for some backstory, so MS took legal action against Aldi regarding the trademark rights of its caterpillar cake. In case you don't know, m and caterpillar cake is Colin or Aldi's is Cotbert's. So the, the whole issue at the time was whether the Cotbert cake was close enough to cause confusion among customers and make people think it was Colin instead. You know, for instance, if you're at a party and they've taken off the packaging, like would people mistake its origin? So now, this case caused a social media frenzy with hashtags like #SaveColin and #FreeCotter trending. Aldi had numerous posts, like um, there was one of stick drawings inside the, cost- the courtroom with the hashtag #FreeCotter. Some other businesses hopped onto the trend. Some were pledging allegiance, and some were just getting in on the fun. So there were tweets from like Morrison's, uh, Patisserie Co-op, and even Pretty Little Thing. It was it was really interesting. <laughs> So
0: why did you choose this legal fun fact for this month?
8: Uh, Earlier yeah, this month, Aldi's Twitter was buzzing with tweets and images about uh, Cuthbert finally being free. There were some tweets like, oh, gets now early on good behavior or like um, freedom has never tasted so good. So I think this story just shows the power of social media and how it can be used to generate positive brand awareness on such a massive scale.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting to see how people have reacted. Are you team C- Colin or team Cuthbert?
8: <laughs> that's hard to say. I would have to say I was Cuthbert at the time, especially because I was actually studying intellectual
0: property when it was going on. So it was like really interesting uh, time. No, that's 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 really interesting. I would have to say I'm definitely more team Colin. Anyway, getting back to the fun fact, very coincidentally, negotiation was involved. Do you want to share a bit more about that?
8: So actually, there were a lot of posts regarding the case and how it had recently been settled out of court. There was no news yet or no information um, given to the public, but we do know that, you know, there was a settlement that was agreed, which is, you know,
0: negotiation skills. Well, it's very interesting to see how this whole case has played out, but this actually might not be the end of the M&S versus Aldi uh, legal battles. I've also heard that M&S aren't happy and have actually filed a lawsuit again about a Christmas gin bottle design. So we'll have to stay tuned and maybe Betty will come back with another fun fact in a a few months time. So thank you again for joining us to share that interesting story. So that's it for this month's episode. A big thank you to our amazing speakers, Philip Brown and Lillian Adebayo for their inspiring and interesting stories and helpful tips uh, on how to tackle negotiation exercises. If you're planning to apply for any training contracts or vacation schemes, do let us know if this podcast is helpful for you. And we also want to say a final big thank you to the Let's Chat Law team, Queenie, Lana, Betty, Sonali and of course Gabby for joining us for this month's episode.
1: So stay tuned for the next episode of Let's Chat Law, the podcast, where we will be talking about all things interviews. We'll be focusing on why this skill is important and just in time for the interview process for pupilage applications and training contracts. So if you have interview relevant question for our guests in March, please email us at let'schatlaw@gmail.com, at gmail.com and we might select your question to put to our guests anonymously, of course.
0: We appreciate all your feedback on Let's Chat Law, the podcast. So please let us know what you thought by leaving us a comment or sending us a message on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. And please do leave a review uh, of the podcast uh, wherever you're listening. Don't forget to click subscribe to this podcast and you'll get notifications when the next episode is out. Finally, remember to subscribe to the Let's Chat Law monthly newsletter to be the first to know about our latest news. See you all in the next episode.